Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, hello, and welcome, or should I say, welcome back to Russia for the Indie Football Podcast Daily edition from the World Cup 2018, which I can now officially declare open uh, following what, <laughs> what can only be described, I guess, as a surprisingly entertaining thriller between hosts Russia and um, a desperate Saudi Arabia side. Uh, alongside me in Moscow, as he was at the Luzhniki Stadium uh, just a few hours ago, is uh, the independent Northern football correspondent, Mark Critchley. Hello, Mark. Hello, Ed. How are you? Did you enjoy the first game of the World Cup? I um, thought it was a one-sided affair, a, a low-quality one-sided affair. I think low-quality is, is the operative word in that phrase. That I don't think, even though you described it as a thriller, I think even though we saw five goals, I wouldn't say... There was a particularly, uh, you know, uh, I don't think it was a particularly good game, basically, and I don't think that um, it's going to rank too highly at the end of the tournament, though we are going to remember it because it was the first game, and it was such an emphatic result and one that really, you know, puts puts quite starkly the the problems and, the, and, and what the World Cup's all about at the moment, which is, um, you know, low quality in some, in some teams. Well, uh, I, I must add that Thriller was not an entirely serious no, uh, analysis of the game. Um, <laughs> I did actually, uh, I pretty much, uh, I, did, I wrote one piece which I'd, I'd finished on like 68 minutes. Um, and I did go back in at the end and change the word dreary to low quality comma one-sided. Okay. Because I thought it was a dreary game. Yeah. Um, there were large portions of the game where I completely switched off. It was It was incredibly dull. But... Uh, you know, Saudi Arabia looked like a team that had never played football before. Um, I, I saw the friendly against Germany the other day, and, and the keeper was excellent, but they just completely fell apart today. Uh, the defenders looked like they'd never played together before. Um, the slip for the first goal, obviously, like a disastrous thing. That some of the goalkeeping towards the end, when they like, and mentally they they just fell apart, and, and Cherishev scores. A great goal, to be fair to him, and then um, the man of the moment, really, Alexander Golovin, with two assists and then a nice free kick curled in to make it five nil. Um, the Saudis, pretty much, you'd say, just completely dead and, and out of this competition. It'll be interesting to see what Uruguay do against them. The real story, I guess, is, is Russia, who, as I wrote in this in the second piece, which was in about the last fifteen minutes of that game, have they now have hope and momentum, which are kind of two fairly key things in a tournament yeah I'd agree with most of that um, I think with these kind of games with such such dominant results and like when, when, when a team when a team wins 5-0 you're always the question that people ask and you obviously often hear on the television is well did for example in this case Russia play really well or did Saudi Arabia play poorly um, and I think today there's only really one answer to that question and it's it's the latter Um I don't know. Like, I, 
Pizzi as a manager, I mean, he, he was successful with Chile at the Copa America in 2015, wasn't he? Um, and he he wondered... was good. He had a good spell with San Lorenzo right, in Argentina. Okay. That's where he basically burst onto the scene. Um, went to Valencia, was was dire at Valencia. And uh, then went with Chile and was, was okay. But was that the, that's the one they won on penalties against Argentina, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I, I just wonder, I do, I, is he trying something that's perhaps beyond him with this group of players or is he a better coach than perhaps we've seen in this one game at the World Cup, which is just one game, I don't know. Like, It is a small sample size, I just felt, um, even just watching it, there are a couple of moments when, uh, we watch a lot of Premier League football, obviously you and I, and uh, there was a moment when like a player could play the the kind of reverse through ball or, or there were passes that you could see there that, and it's not like oh a really good player could make that it's like most players I think could make that and and it didn't even seem to occur to some of the players or whatever it was just a, a little bit surprising the obvious conclusion um, you know, I, I try and stay off uh, social media's most famous cesspit uh, during games but it, it's also quite difficult um, which so, cesspit is this? Uh, uh, twitter.com oh, and, okay. and there are a lot of the the instant reactions were why are this lot in here in the USA and Italy and wherever aren't in here? Well, that's because uh, they divide up the World Cup between lots of different confederations. Mm-hmm. It's a fairly simple explanation. Yeah. Um, how bad is it going to be with 48 teams? A much more pertinent question. Um, quite bad is the answer. You know, and also, some of the bad teams are going to get through because it's going to be, was it, like groups of three? So you only play two games. Um, it's an advantage to play first I think a massive advantage to play first so then teams will be playing for draws and stuff like the whole thing is going to be farcical but we knew this when they decided to make a decision that was based more around money than entertainment or anything else Um, that's interesting I think that you say that it would be based around money or entertainment Um, because there is kind of two ways of looking at this and I did so the piece that I wrote which was the report was you know it kind of went into that and asked and and said you know there's this old cliche that there's no difficult games in international football and this was kind of formed during those kind of old World Cups that we had that were more compact and that you know there would be strength and depth throughout all the teams in the tournament and it seems like every World Cup since has kind of diluted that and made it even more inaccurate that kind of idea but I mean I suppose it comes down to what do what do we really want the World Cup to be do we want it to be uh, the best the the greatest football tournament on the planet which is like almost our what we use as a second mention for it in our reports you know but like or do we want it to be a representation of of world football um and if if we want the latter and i think perhaps nowadays perhaps and the more, as the hours have gone past the game and i thought about it a bit more I think that's that would be the more popular thing. We would like to think that like that these countries from all over the world have a chance to come and the fans have a chance to enjoy a tournament. And if that's what we want to see in football, then these are the kind of you know results and performances that we might have to tolerate. A beautiful, impassioned defence of, of the World Cup there. <laughs> well, um, I'm not sure I believe in at, at one o'clock in I'll, the morning let, in Moscow. But... Uh, yeah, Critch is very tired. I'll let him wipe the tear <laughs> from his eye. Um, before the game, we wandered through central Moscow, uh, where we hadn't really spent much time because we are in, uh, if central Moscow is central London, we are in the equivalent of, say, Peckham, uh, yes. would you say, in a, in a, on the 14th Without floor. knowing Peckham too well, yeah. Apart yeah. from the Peckham Plex, which is a really good place to go for a £5 film. 
not that they're sponsoring this podcast or anything, but continue. Sorry. Uh, sorry, yeah, South London cinemas aside, uh, we're on the 14th floor of Tower Block in, in the Moscow equivalent of Peckham. And uh, we went to the city centre earlier and it was just just brilliant. Um, and I'd kind of been moaning a little bit last night. I didn't feel that there was a really World Cup going on yet. And I guess the problem being that we were in, you know... Peckham. Peckham, yeah. So we were in Peckham and, and the World Cup was going on, but it was going on in central Moscow, in Trafalgar Square. So we went into town today and saw St. Basil's Cathedral. Good church, by the way. Um, whoever designed that, you know, trippy but great. Uh, Kremlin, good walls, good walls. Yeah. Um, red Square, not, not particularly red. But the rest of it, you know, it was great. Uh, was it Nicholas Skyer Street, the one with all the lights? The Christmas lights. That... The, the Christmas lights that aren't Christmas. But it is for many football fans. It is Christmas. Um, <laughs> and there were so many football fans there from around the world. And that, that's kind of the thing that, that hit home. Is, and a lot of them are from the countries where you, they might not win a game. You know, there were plenty of Saudis. There were Panamanians. Um, Peru. Peru. Peru fans are absolutely everywhere, even though they don't play a game in Moscow. Uh, well, they don't play a game in Moscow in the group stage. Um, and you made the point that that might be because they're, you know, it's actually easier in Russia. And Miguel made this point yesterday as well. It's actually easier in Russia to just base yourself in Moscow and travel out from Moscow because you invariably have to come back to go anywhere else. But Peru fans are absolutely everywhere. Mexican fans, just generally Latin America. And I, I don't know, I, I maybe saw, I, I think I saw a group. Uh, father, son, and um, mother on the metro system that were Swedish fans, but that was barely any other European fans that weren't Russians. No, it's surprising. I mean, the Dutch usually travel in large numbers. Obviously, um, they're not here because uh, their entire football system seems to have melted um, like Edam cheese. But the Latin Americans, Mexico, absolutely right to mention them, one of the best. Um, in terms of travelling, a surprisingly strong economy, they always seem to qualify for World Cup. So I guess it's it's more normal. Peru haven't been here for thirty six years. They are probably the best represented. I think they might they might become the neutrals' favourite because they play a sort of exciting brand. Ricardo Gareca, really underrated coach. I'm going to do a piece about him probably later this week um, or sort of early next week um, about his time at Vélez Sarsfield and. Uh, the Argentines there were some Argentines kicking about earlier on uh, lots of Brazilians Colombians have travelled in great numbers mm. and I, I guess we just didn't expect to see that many people come from that far you know I think the feeling in Europe in the western world was because, probably because we're more exposed to the fact that uh, the fact that sorry the allegations that they have meddled in, in certain elections and there is a sort of standoff between the west and Russia but Latin America probably doesn't see that same standoff. You know, they're concentrating on their own issues and they're not really, you know, so they wouldn't have heard of Sergei Skripal, for example. So all the Latin Americans that have come provide incredible colour and, and it's more, it's just when you see they're legitimately excited about this and, and then you realise, okay, like, that's why we're here. That's why we're here. And there were a load of Saudis and there were a load of Saudis at the game and we saw on the way to the Lizhniki the Saudi guys outside, and they were as pumped as could be. Um, you know, obviously it didn't quite turn out for them as you would have hoped, but it made you realise that there is a World Cup going on, and and therefore, when you expand to forty-eight teams, the quality might be diluted slightly, but there will still be the great stories in there. So, so does it matter? Does it matter? I mean, I mean, well, it depends where you draw the line, I suppose. I think, I think thirty-two teams. 
is given my age first tournament I can properly remember and having enjoyed as a World Cup is France 98 which was the first out of 32 teams to me it's it, it, it's natural and it's normal but it is I, th- I think it is still a fact that you, you still get weak teams in it every, every single edition of the tournament I think Saudi Arabia have been so they weren't at they weren't at 2014 they weren't at 2010 but I remember watching them in 20, uh, 2002 uh, lose 8-0 against Germany and I think over the last eleven games, I'm gonna get this. I'm gonna get this wrong now. The actual score line, but it's it's we're talking like thirty-five to four over the last eleven games, which they've lost on aggregate, if you like. So it's difficult to strike the right balance, isn't it? And it's. I I think like I said, I think it comes to a point where we just have to recognise the fact that what we're actually witnessing isn't. Um, isn't the pinnacle of world football sometimes and, and I think that was evident from the game that we watched today but it wasn't evident um, on the streets of Moscow uh, so looking at, at Russia and, and you say they won 5-0 mm. according to 538 <coughs> apologies according to 538 the well-known analytics website they have an 89% chance of progressing to the round of 16 is that right um, do you subscribe to the view of that the host nation going through is a good thing for the tournament. Um, I think that might be a little bit of a fallacy. I don't know because we don't really. So South Africa failed in two thousand and ten, didn't they? Would you say that that particularly damaged that tournament? I mean, I don't think it would have been any more successful if they'd gone through. They weren't a particularly good side, and not even a particularly good one to watch. Ghana's story in that tournament was. It, it, they kind of took on the cause because I, I think people people's perception of that tournament was that yes South Africa is South Africa but it's the first African World Cup and people wanted an African team to do well and as long as it was one of and, and you know I'm not saying if it's the right attitude to take but as long as it was one of them they were quite happy with it and it seemed to carry Ghana's story through that tournament seemed to carry the momentum of the tournament through as well um, do we need Russia to go through to make Russia 2018 a success I don't know I, I uh, again, your perspectives in the Western world, I'm sure people don't really, <laughs> a lot of people don't really care too much whether Russia progress or not. I think uh, over here, uh, I, would, I, would, I would like to see them progress, but then at the same time, I think that that would be the loss of either Uruguay or Egypt, wouldn't it? Who, who are, on the evidence of today, I would still say are probably better football teams than, than Russia. And Egypt, um, a country we forgot to mention, is, is someone who's quite well represented in terms of travelling fans. Um, so, so your piece kind of touched on this. Your your piece, which is obviously on on the website independent.co.uk slash football. Um, I wrote one on. Uh, to be honest, it was it was self indulgent nonsense about a lot of things, including the concept of travel, um, the travelling fans, uh, the way that we consume games like this, like Russia Saudi Arabia, as we were kind of touched on last night on the podcast when Miguel ruined my idea about it kind of you're traveling through the unknown a bit you you don't know what Ilya Kupatov is like as a footballer like none of us really knew what to expect from Al Safi in midfield this was a classic World Cup game in terms of like you just didn't know what the matchups were going to be like and we come out of it with a hero in in Golovin who most people hadn't really seen much I remember he scored against Arsenal I think for CSKA Um, but Otherwise, it's not necessarily like a really well-known player. So, 
thought that was interesting. And then it's the, the travelling through time of, of nostalgia and like that first goal will be, the pictures of it will be replayed kind of in Russia for the next few days non-stop. We were in a restaurant tonight afterwards and the game was just on loop. Yeah. And five times. Safiwe Shabalala's goal and Papa Bouba Diop's goal against France in 2002. The, the opening game is a, is a crucial one. Uh, you know, the, the, we talked about World Cup memories um, in the preview podcast. And we said that memories are massive for the World Cup because the whole idea of nostalgia and it's, it's when was your first World Cup and all that sort of stuff. And naturally, the first game of a World Cup is one that people remember. Like, it might be your first World Cup ever. You might be 10 years old. It might be the first World Cup you've ever been to. Uh, in your case, it might be any... It could, it could be like, oh, you're just at uni and this is your summer of freedom and, and whatever, you know. But the fact is you're remembering stuff and, and that was the first goal you remember and stuff. so there is that element of it and and I wonder if the 48 team World Cup thing is it's like you don't remember all the crap games from past World Cups you remember the good ones so we always do that with memories like you know think of like the best time of your life like maybe like a year at university or if, when you were living abroad or whatever you remember all the good stuff about when you lived in say Brazil and you forget all the bad stuff, like having to queue up for three hours to get like a, I don't know, like a piece of paperwork to allow you to work or whatever. You know, it, it's the 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 brain does funny things, and it does sometimes eliminate the bad, um, and, and it just keeps the good. So it's like a selective filtering; it's a self protection sort of thing. Um, and I wonder if that would be the result of a forty eight team World Cup. We'd have a load of crap group games, but by the end, no one would care. That's a that's a very Interesting insight into the chemical wiring of your brain. I think. <laughs> uh, I mean, this, that might literally just be me. But but, it, uh, but you know, like so, uh, phew, uh, there's there's been plenty of poor World Cup games in the past, hasn't? There? Right. Yeah, but I know. But my point is that you can't you can't remember them exactly. That's my point. You can't remember them. You can't remember them because your brain, <laughs> your, t- your tiny little northern brain, is is erased somewhere. Right. Yeah. So I think. Um, it's worth thinking about that. Anything else that you'd like to say about Russia, Saudi Arabia, El Gasico, as um, nobody has called it? As nobody's called it because Saudi Arabia is an oil exporter. And anyway, anyway, we've had this conversation on the tube over. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is there anything else that I would like to add on it? I'm, I don't. I, I. I really like. I said before. I don't think that it is going to be remembered as a particular classic game. I, I think the Russians, you know, they'll look back at it and think. Oh, how the hell did we manage that one? Because like we were looking at this yesterday, and I apologise again for pointing out that Saudi Arabia were nine to one. <laughs> uh, uh, because it looked too good to be true at the time. Maybe the FIFA rankings aren't all they cracked up to be. What can I say? Um, what, who, who would have would, guessed that? Who would have, who would have known? One thing I will say is that I was in the um, I was in the press conference afterwards with um, the Russian manager. Whose name? I What's his name? Wrong. Sorry, who's, who's the name, Russian manager? I've written it several times. Uh, I'm not. I'm not going to get it right. It's, it sounds like Dennis Cherry. You know, it's like Churitsev, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I don't actually care. Carry on with the story. <laughs> anyway, so he was he was called during the middle of his press conference um, while the, the man of the match, Dennis Churitsev, was was giving his player interview. They'd get the man of the match in. He was giving his players interview. The journalists were asking questions to Churitsev. And the head coach picked suddenly picked up his phone and 
go up from the top table, walk to the side. Came back a few uh, minutes later when it was his turn to answer questions and the first question was, of course, well, who, who called you? Because who could possibly be calling that's so important you know, when you're in the middle of a press conference talking to us a lot? It turned out that it was um, the head of state, Mr Vladimir Putin, who personally called to congratulate him at that moment on his team's performance and said that he would hope that they carry on would continue playing like that in the rest of the tournament, which you might take as a minor threat or, yeah. <laughs> or, or, or a compliment. Um, I refuse it's, to it's believe Mr. Those, Putin would threaten anyone. No, of course. Um, but it's one of those, like, just, just I, I would like to know what was going through his mind when he was sat in front of all these journalists and he suddenly looked down at his phone and it just flashed up, you know. Big Vlad. Mr. Mr. President, yeah. Uh, what would you, I mean, would, would, does Putin still make that call, phone call if they lose 5-0? That's the question, isn't it? it? It's less of the minor threat, I think, if they lose five now. It's well, I think you just you you'd never accept in the phone call. I don't think he answers it. Airplane mode. Five Airplane else. mode. Yeah, yeah, and um, and it, he'd have to be a brave man to pick that phone up and say sorry, not right now. But yes, yeah, so that was an interesting takeaway from the end of the game. But like I said, I don't think it's going to be remembered. I don't think it's going to go down as 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 a classic at all. Either, you know, it was it was a display of like one team that just bafflingly poor Saudi Arabia in defence and uh, and Russia to be fair to them exploited those weaknesses but I, you say 87% and I know the guys of 538 know this stuff but um, I'm not I'm, I'm not convinced they still get out of this group just yet I think Uruguay and Egypt are stronger teams than that an interesting take as ever uh, the other thing to remember is Alan Jagowev um, yeah went down I mean that was the most obvious like hamstring snap you've ever seen. He was completely off the ball. It looked like no one with about five yards. It looked like he'd been shot. Yeah, like seniors football. You know when you play. I mean, I used to play in Blackburn with some like sixty-year-old blokes, and you know every so often, the game would suddenly take a turn of pace, and one of them would pick up speed, and then you know that happens, and it looked like that. Yeah, but you know he, he collapsed forward as if he'd been kind of shot by a sniper from behind, which uh, you know, can't rule out these days, um, and, and that's. You know, probably their best known and most creative player out of the competition. I would ask you how they're going to replace him, but I think they'll do exactly what they did on the day, which is Denis Cheryshev comes on, goes on the left. Your man Golovin like strolls into the centre. Now he's 22 years old, and he looks like he could be the face of of this Russian team going forward. Cheryshev, uh, good to see him do well. Was he missed? Um, is it the last what, a couple of the Euros he missed with an injury? He's had a lot of injury problems, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was a Real Madrid kid, and it never really worked out from there. Went uh, on loan to Villarreal, then permanent. It was loan in Sevilla as well. Uh, famously, kind of contributed to Rafa Benitez's sacking, as we were discussing earlier, because he played for Real Madrid uh, when he was actually ineligible uh, due to some ludicrous yellow card hangover from the season before when he was on loan at Villarreal. There's an argument about who sent emails and whatever, but anyway, uh, Real Madrid got knocked out in the Copa del Rey really early. Rafa Benitez got sacked eventually. Zinedine Zidane came in, and, and who knows how that went. Um, so that's Russia, Saudi Arabia. Uh, we should probably have a little chat about uh, tomorrow's games, but first, let's dial up our, our man in Rapino, uh, the party centre, it sounds like, of, of Russia, and see how Jack Pitbrook is. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Jack. Uh, Moscow calling. Um, well, first of all, I mean, how are you? Where are you? What have you been up to today? Hi, Ed. It's midnight in Rapino. The sun is still up, the ticks are starting to descend, and England successfully completed their second day of training here today. Hi Jack, it's Chris. Just tell us a little bit about what England got up to today, what they did in training. It was quite a low-key day for England at Zelenogorsk today, certainly compared to yesterday. It started with one minute of silence for the Grenfell fire, which was a year ago today, something that the England squad are very keen to commemorate. Then there was only 15 minutes of training open to the media, uh, you know, some basic warm-up and possession exercises before the media all had to leave and England got into their serious session. Like yesterday, though, there were only 22 England players out, with Marcus Rashford still recovering from the knock that he picked up in England on Monday. Although we did learn later on this evening that Rashford completed some light exercises later today and will be taking a full part in training tomorrow. You did mention by text earlier on um, that you'd enjoyed talking to Jesse Lingard earlier. Uh, you had a bit of time with Kieran Trippier as well, but it seems that Lingard left a bit of a, a mark with the stuff he was saying. So tell us a little bit about how all that, that media availability went today. In the media centre this afternoon, we spoke to Kieran Trippier and Jesse Lingard. Trippier was as upbeat and confident as ever. He's quite a tub-thumper, Trippier. He's very, very enthusiastic, very patriotic, uh, and he always he, he always gives you good copy. Then when we spoke to Lingard, he was actually very interesting. He spoke about uh, his role in the team, how he, what it means to kind of play play between the lines, uh, in that kind of attacking midfield role that he has for England. He even talked about what he's learned from Andres Iniesta. He, I mean, he might not be the first player you think of when you think about Lingard, but he's actually been a player who, from the start of Lingard's career, he's been compared to, not least by Rennie Mullenstein, uh, the famous Dutch skills coach who oversaw Lingard's development in the United Academy and then later on into the first team. I think it was Mullenstein always used to say to Lingard, you know, you can be the English version of Iniesta. Um, which is the kind of comment that would often raise eyebrows. But today, actually, I asked Lengard if there was a player that he particularly looked up to after he'd been talking about you know, him, him asking Paul Scholes questions when Scholes was a first team at United. And he brought up Iniesta, you know, the way that Iniesta receives the ball in space, causes problems to the opposition between the lines. And it was, it was very interesting hearing from Lingard talking about his role in the team in a way which I've never heard him speak about before. But I think Lingard's an interesting player because, you know, he hadn't really been a fixture for England until Southgate arrived. But Southgate's obviously been a big fan of Lingard for a while. He had him in the under-21s. 
And looking back, Southgate brought Lingard into his first England squad in October 2016, and he's barely been out of the setup since. I mean, not many people would have had Lingard down as an automatic starter for the World Cup, and yet now he's one of the first names on the team sheet. And you wonder, even if England go on to change their midfield later in the tournament, perhaps if they want to play Henderson and Eric Dyer in the same midfield, for example, I'd be quite surprised if it was Lingard who misses out. So for a player who has become such an important member of Southgate's first team, it was quite revealing to hear him talk about his role in this in this way. And if you want to read my my thoughts and my piece on Lingard's role in his team, it will be up on independent.co.uk first thing tomorrow morning. Well, if Lingard plays as well as Iniesta, then I think uh, everyone back in England will be happy. Tomorrow you're not on England duty, I believe you're you're heading south. Is that right? Tomorrow, on Friday, I'm actually going to leave Rapino, take the train down into St. Petersburg and make my World Cup debut at Morocco against Iran. I'm incredibly excited for obvious reasons, but also because I'm very keen to see Hervé Renard's Morocco team in action. Lots been made about how they're a diaspora team, with players like Yunus Belonda, Mehdi Benatia, Hakim Ziyech, who've been born and brought up in Western Europe, you know, in France, Holland, Belgium, and have made the most of the superior resources there. But the player that most interests me is Ayub El Kabi, sorry, a centre forward who plays for Renaissance Bacan in the Moroccan League. I wrote a big profile on him, on which you can read now on the independent website. He's interesting because he's one of only two players in the Moroccan squad who actually plays his club football in Morocco. I saw him play in the final of Chan which is the African tournament for players who play their club football in Africa. He absolutely destroyed that tournament. He scored nine goals, which is the most anyone's ever scored in that competition. And he's got a rags-to-riches story. You know, he was, frankly, he was playing in the Casablanca Amateur Leagues and training as a carpenter a few years ago. Now he's playing in the World Cup, and he's probably on the brink of a big move to a big club with Besiktas watching him. I mean, you know, we think that Jamie Vardy's a good rags-to-riches story, and he is, but um, Ayub Al-Kabi is something else. So I'm incredibly excited to see him play and the rest of the Morocco team. And given all the turmoil going on in Spain and the kind of doubts over the Portugal side, I wonder whether Morocco could be a real dark horse to make their way out of Group B. OK, and then after that, uh, what are your plans for this weekend? Uh, are things getting tense yet uh, around the England camp with uh, the first game coming up? on Saturday hopefully going to have a quiet day in St Petersburg and then on Sunday I'm flying from St Petersburg to Moscow and Moscow to Volgograd in preparation for the big one England's opening game against Tunisia on Monday night Um, I think I wouldn't say the mood in the England camp is tense yet it's still slightly too far away but it'll be interesting to see how things pan out as we get closer and closer to the big kickoff and we start to really have to confront the question which is as much as we like this England team and as much as we like Gareth Southgate and the mood that he's engendered are they actually any good? Okay. Thank you, Jacko. Um, Rapino sounds uh, every bit. As far, I mean, the, I'm not so keen on the the ticks that he was talking about, uh, but I did read someone else complaining about that earlier. And apparently, you need tweezers and you just need to pull them out by the head uh, if they embed themselves in your skin. So that's uh, today's parasite watch uh, brought to you by the Indie Football Podcast. We should look at tomorrow, I guess, with. Uh, what, three games for the first time? So this is proper World Cup stuff. Like today was a bit of a nonsense. Robbie Williams, um, lest we forget, we haven't mentioned him yet, uh, the pride of Stoke. Um, but tomorrow's the real thing. So was it first up, we head to Yekaterinburg. Is it? Uh, I think it is. No, I think it is. Because it's... Um, Egypt versus Uruguay. 
Egypt, Uruguay, yes, because Jonathan Wilson is at that game for us, yeah. and that is in Yekaterinburg, which is the furthest east city um, at this World Cup. Egypt, Uruguay, Egypt have been tipped by a lot of people as being the dark horses. They do really well in seemingly every African Cup of Nations, um, but their first World Cup since 1990. We think Uruguay are probably going to win this, right? Uh, I, I, I would say they're definitely favourites, definitely favourites to win the group as well. Um, I, I, like I, I, just watching Saudi Arabia today, you you fear for what they're gonna what's gonna happen to them against Uruguay, but you know like uh, the big news for Egypt is obviously that Mohamed Salah is is back fit as confirmed today after the shoulder well, injury. In the, in didn't the they Champions say he, he's hundred percent playing? They didn't yes. say he's hundred percent starting. Yes, but like fit enough to play. Like we, so we expect he'll have an impact at some point, and if it's an impact like he's had at any point during the season at Liverpool, then it should be it should be a major one. But that's the question, isn't it, I suppose? Um, having watched Liverpool a lot this season, I always thought that Salah was obviously a phenomenal player, but he was somebody who was an absolute perfect fit for that team. And, and the team was almost built around him and, and the positions that he got him, they it operated and it, like accentuated his strengths. Um, his goal-scoring record for Egypt is, is excellent. It's not quite as good as his one for Liverpool, I suppose. But... Um, the question is whether he's able to produce that on this stage with this Egypt team. Um, I think for Salah himself, this is the interesting thing is you know like on on before before the Kiev game it, it felt like this whole wave that he was riding this wave of popularity this kind of like thing building up into is this guy perhaps the third best player in the world or maybe he's he's even in the top two we don't know. Um, and and just everything that happened that night in Kiev just seemed to pull the rug from underneath him and not quite take the momentum away but this is the test isn't it to see whether that momentum's still there and uh, I'm not saying he needs a big World Cup or we start doubting him or anything like that but like this you know he's he's, he's you feel like he's almost on the brink of global superstardom and victory in the Champions League final with a massive performance would have sealed it um, now he's got almost a second bite of the cherry at that at the World Cup and uh, it's about whether he's fit enough and in the right state of mind and also again like I said in the right team in order to achieve that Croc Salah has much to prove says Mark Critchley <laughs> so. uh, that's yeah. pretty much what you said um, I, I think Uruguay are interesting um, I think they're interesting for a number of reasons they've got a very good coach in Oscar Washington Tabarez who's, who's been there a long time mm-hmm. incredibly settled unit very small country, three, four million people about the size of Wales, um, but historically great overachievers, obviously have won two World Cups, albeit in a completely different era. Um, and they are a team who are famous for what they call the, the Garra Charua, which is the Charua people were the, were the indigenous people to that region of the River Plate Basin. So it's, um, and Garra literally means hook, but it means... Uh, fight so and it's like a spirit so it's like the the indigenous spirit which you know, basically means they're going to run all day long and they fight and they fight and they fight and that's embodied by players like Diego Godin and, and Jose Maria Jimenez who are the sort of centre-backs who at Atletico Madrid throw themselves in front of bullets to to stop anyone scoring you know and they, they would put their face on the line like John Terry style boot to the teeth to to stop their, their team conceding a goal Traditionally, they also had a very combative midfield, and then up front they had kind of Forlan and Suarez, Forlan, Suarez, Cavani, whatever. But that 
has kind of phased out with with the retirement or or the aging of of the hatchet men that they had in there, and now they've got a young, exciting midfield. Arsenal are in negotiations over Sampdoria's midfielder, uh, Lucas Torreira, who's a handy sort of playmaker. Moved to Italy originally as a striker, but he's moved backwards and he's kind of a central midfielder now. Matthias Facino plays in Serie A as well. Rodrigo Bentanco was at Boca Juniors, is now at Juventus. Very, very talented young midfielder. I think he's only like 21. Um, there's the kid that plays with Boca, whose name escapes me. Nandez, Nahita Nandez, I think he is. Um, and George Andiara Chieta, who is a, a number 10 sort of player, who should have taken the, the leap to Europe and instead signed for Cruzeiro, I think it was, in Brazil. But that is a, a talented young midfield who are going to create chances. And the guys ahead of them... I mean, Suarez has had a down season. Uh, he looks a bit... Plump? Uh, I'm trying to think of a kind word. Uh, I don't think that's a kind word, but... I sorry. I understand what you mean. Uh, yes, he... Uh, as, as my dad uh, once, uh, said to me about three years ago, uh, you're looking a bit puffy. Uh, so he's, he's slightly uh, more sluggish than he was. And... Cavani is a sort of Cavani's one my play, he's my player who is genuinely considered to be really good and I've never seen him have a good game pretty much at club level at international level I have seen him play well for Argentina I think uh, sorry, for Uruguay sorry I think what he does well is he can occupy all four defenders he makes smart runs to to make life difficult for defenders but I've seen him miss way too many chances if Suarez and Cavani kind of light up any team then it's going to be a big score for Uruguay because I think they are a very good side um, but Egypt have a kind of wily manager in Hector Cooper I think Salah is obviously a, a, a dangerous player so that is an interesting game that is a very interesting game but you still fancy Uruguay I, I guess yeah I still fancy Uruguay I'm interested about Suarez I mean I always thought that with Suarez is um, one of his greatest attributes really was you know we always talked about his tenacity but his close control with the ball as well uh, and just the way he would kind of wriggle out of like like past defenders and, well, uh, and well, this is the thing this is is this, has, has he lost that though do you think with, with, I'm worried about that because exactly that is, is what he was good at is the, the first half yard get away from a defender and get a shot off yeah. you know one of, the, one of his nicknames is El Pistolero which is like the um the gunman. The gunman, yeah, yeah, you know, like wow. you, my Spanish is coming yeah, on. Yeah, really good, really good. And nearly as good as your Russian. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and it is basically it's get half a yard and get the shot off, and, and that's it's important. And if you lose that tiny bit of explosion, then it can mean you know it's the difference between the defender getting a toe on it and, and not. So it'll be interesting to see how he does. Um, but I do think that Uruguay team, I mean, they're going to be very well drilled. They're going to, as I say, be a bit more creative. They're probably not going to be as solid through the middle. So um, there will be teams that could take advantage of that. I'm just not sure if Egypt are the team to take advantage of that. Mohamed Elneny, uh, you know, who else have they got in the middle? Um, Sam Morsi plays in England, doesn't he? Mm, uh, a couple of, you know, so that would be interesting. Um, but I still fancy Uruguay, as you do, seemingly. The game after that is which? Iran versus Morocco. Iran versus Morocco that's the one that Jack's going to be at for us uh, Jack has just told us all about Morocco so uh, I mean I don't know enough about how you know it's a bit like Russia Saudi Arabia I don't know how well Iran play um, and I've seen a bit of Morocco and they seem to have better players so I'm going to side with Morocco 3-1 3-1 
Yes. Okay, 3 1. I, I'm going to say that that's going to be a low key affair. Let's say 0 0. You see, my theory is that goalkeepers and defenders aren't as good as people think uh, in some of these teams. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a payoff, isn't there? Like, are the, are the forward players as, as good as we think? Well, the Moroccans have definitely got good attacking players. That's yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. So what you're saying is Morocco have got good, good players, better players than Iran, and I'm right. <laughs> um, uh, and it's then, a three-one. Okay. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's a prediction, and like, don't hold me to it. Yeah, sure. You know, sure. you were talking about Saudi Arabia at nine to one yesterday. Yeah. Um. Uh. With, by the way, with our our betting partners, uh, Betfair. If you're going to bet on that, thank you, Mr. Betfair. Um, for your support and finally the late game is Spain versus Portugal the one we're all waiting for Spain versus Portugal so we should have got Miguel on the phone um, but I believe Miguel he's seemed kind of, kind of reluctant not to come on the phone or reluctant to come on the phone I should say last I time. think Miguel's out for uh, what, what, what did he term Refreshment. a late dinner uh, okay. is, is how he termed it in Kiev I think uh, so Spain Portugal but we should talk about Lopetegui because he's Somebody predicted in our WhatsApp group chat yesterday that uh, what if Lopetegui actually cries at the press conference? There's nothing wrong with, of course, but at the same time, it actually came to pass. Yeah, so Lopetegui cried. Uh, his uh, Amazingly, his press conference, the unveiling at Real Madrid, happened just before the Fernando Hierro and Sergio Ramos press conference in Sochi, was it? Yeah, in Sochi yeah. itself. Lopetegui at the Real Madrid press conference said yesterday was the saddest day of my life after the death of my mother but today is the happiest um he was pretty respectful otherwise florentino perez was less so and accused luis rubiales um uh, the man we talked about at length yesterday of having uh, tried to besmirch the great name and smear the great name of real madrid uh in a bizarre sort of monologue that that only florentino really could go on and then in Sochi, I mean, again, the game was going on that we were actually at, so I didn't pay a huge amount of attention to this. But uh, Sergio Ramos got up and walked out after persistent questioning about the, uh, the whole thing. Is that correct? Described it as being like a funeral in here and he wanted to put a smile on people's faces. Um, yeah, so I, I think like a lot of what we said yesterday about Lopetegui obviously still stands because <laughs> the position hasn't particularly changed that much. But interestingly, like... Someone, the, another journalist today, when we were at the game, he remarked to me, it's, it's strange how that Spain story is now just because of the news cycle, it's just fallen out of the news cycle. And I was kind of like, okay, yeah, it, well, it kind of has, but it will really fall out of the news cycle tomorrow if Spain win the game. Suddenly, suddenly this whole kind of drama that's built up and there the, was the, the biggest story of the World Cup yesterday will we'll be kind of forgotten about. And, uh, you know, that's... If the Spanish players realise that, as I'm sure they do, then that's that's kind of the prize that's on offer for them because they score three points over their biggest main rivals in the group. Suddenly, they're only, what, four points off winning the group from games against Iran and Morocco. You'd have to fancy them to do that. And then from there, it's almost as you were because people expected them to qualify first in the group and, and to reach the final. Um, so, yeah, but the, obviously tomorrow is probably the game of the group stage. And, um, and, and yeah, I... I, I it's, it's so difficult to call after the week that we've just had. I think Portugal are... I mean, didn't they... They got through in the Euros at like drawing all three group games. 
They didn't. They 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 won one of their seven games at the tournament in ninety minutes. Is that against Wales? I think that's right. So they are under Fernando Santos fundamentally quite a conservative team, and he's not going to change that. And he's certainly not going to change that against probably the best team in the world, or at worst, one of the best three teams in the world. So I would. I that's the one. You know, you you're, you've got a thing that basically any any team that you're not completely fully comfortable with are going to draw nil-nil I think Spain <laughs> Spain-Portugal is the nil-nil and we're going to get goal fests between Iran and Morocco and I think Uruguay-Egypt could be like you know another another entertaining encounter okay. so um, there are predictions um, as ever you know head, head to the website and check everything out there's been some great stuff there's been some behind the scenes stuff on, on the Instagram page today independent sport if um, you're one of those millennials that I, I read so much about, uh, if you go to independent.co.uk slash football, we've got loads of uh, loads and loads and loads of World Cup content flying at you. There's, I think, five exclusive interviews go live on the website tomorrow. We've got Marcel Desailly talking about France. We have uh, Wilfred and Didi talking uh, about Nigeria and also um, England's Leicester pair, Harry Maguire. Um, and Jamie Vardy. We've also got exclusive interviews with um, Juan Olata Cachea, who won the World Cup with Spain in... Nine, no, didn't win the World Cup with Spain in 1982. He played for Spain in 1982. Um, and we've got two more that I can't remember because it's so late now um, that I've been up for about 20 hours. And um, for that reason, that reason alone, I'm going to go to bed. Um Enjoy uh, the trio of World Cup games we've got coming at you. We'll be back tomorrow night reviewing those three and then previewing, would you believe, four games in a day, Critch, for Saturday. That podcast might extend into about two hours. But um, until then, uh, thank you for listening as always. Um, If you're enjoying the daily podcast, please tell your friends. uh, Rate, review and, and subscribe. It just helps us find more people. Um, and keep reading all of the good work and uh, if you've got any suggestions apart from improve the sound quality because there's nothing I can do about the acoustics in this uh, 14th floor apartment then please let me know otherwise thank you for listening Uh, it's at Indie Football the Indie Football Podcast thank you and goodbye Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.